This is a reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down another steps down before while I'm going down another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And together we pray, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Over to you, Sam. Kia ora whanau. Good morning. Hi, it's me again, Sam. Hi. Um, it's good to be here. Thank you, Mary, for reading what's quite actually an ominous story. Um, uh, this is the second time that I've spoken here, so um, it's either a stunning endorsement of round one or a gracious redo, so we'll let you uh, be the judge of which one it is. Um, when I was asked to speak about this passage by John Hoskin over there, um, my first impulse was, I would rather have another one, actually. This story seems like a bit of a dud, and quite frankly, this is classic Hoskin, uh, stealing the good story of Nicodemus in the nighttime while I get given this one. Um, he likes to think he's really redeemed, but he's not. That's what I was going through in my brain. Because um, as I read this story, I was sort of reading it and thought, this is a dud. This is a story of a guy who gets healed and actually doesn't seem uh, to know what's been done for him. Um, but, as always happens, as a, in a closer look, really noticing that what's in this passage, in this ominous passage, is actually quite profound. Um, and it's a, it's a real privilege for me to be able to kind of be part of speaking the words of Jesus over you this morning. It's a real privilege for me to do that. So, just as a recap, in the book of John, it's kind of split into two parts. Uh, but the first half is uh, kind of seven signs, seven main signs. Um, and these are not just sort of miracles to impress us. They're not just sort of like a portfolio of Jesus' greatest hits. Um, they're like uh, miracles that are icons. They're windows into what God is like. Um, they're specially chosen by the author to paint a picture of what God is like. 
Uh, so we have, we have the turning of the water into wine. Uh, we have the healing of the official son, the feeding of the 5,000. We have walking on water. We have healing of the blind man. And then finally, it climax with the um, raising of Lazarus from the dead. And these are icons. They're not really a chronology or a history. Um, it's kind of like a mosaic of meaning or, or a tapestry of pictures or images um, to say something profound about God. Uh, and in the middle of these signs, you have this story of the pool of Bethesda. So, here's the backdrop to the story, and all these things are mentioned in the passage. Um, we have the authorities, the Sabbath, and the feasts. So, the authorities, the religious authorities, the religious leaders at the time, in the imaginations of the people, they really did symbolize and carry the authority of God. Uh, they sort of uh, are the ones that kind of kept everything in check and made sure people knew what was true. You also had the Sabbath, which was kind of like the marker for living under God's authority and living by God's time. So that was, um, that was really, really important in, in sort of showing that people did that. This is not a small deal. Uh, and then we also have the feast, and that's mentioned at the beginning of the passage. And these were uh, celebrations of hope, uh, not just celebrating what's gone before, uh, but also celebrating in hope that, yes, God's acted in the past, but um, one day he will act finally to bring true freedom for everybody. So these were like looking backwards and looking forwards things. So these are all in the passage to kind of give us a bit of a heads up that uh, these things are happening. And these things were serious. They commanded the attention. They structured the imagination of people. This was serious stuff. So much so that when God was in the midst and the embodied version of God's authority and God's rest and God's celebration and hope was in their midst, they couldn't see it because it was not what they expected. The very thing that all these things were pointing to and they couldn't see it. What we also have in this passage is a little bit of a, a superstitious thing as well. So we have the pool. Um, now, this is, this is more of a pagan thing. Um, the belief was, um, what actually used to happen was the waters would get stirred up, uh, and the belief was that an angel was doing that, and if you got into the water first, you'd be healed of your ailment. So this is what they all believed. Um, now, scholars sort of have a discussion around maybe when that was, the water was stirred up, maybe minerals were released or something like that. But um, the idea was actually this place was full of people hoping to be well, they were desperate to be well. This place was teeming with people. Um, and then it's also in this backdrop that Jesus shows up. The actual healing of God in embodied form shows up at this place. So you've got all these things that are kind of straining towards the proper thing, and no one knows that he's in the midst. It's quite amazing. And then we meet our friend, our friend who's uh, had this ailment for 38 years claiming that uh, no one could help him in, but also, interestingly, seemingly not doing anything different. Um, it's kind of like his life is in limbo. And there's a certain sense from the text that he's accepted his lot. Um, 38 years is a little bit longer than I've been alive, so as I read that, I'm thinking this is, this is quite tragic that he's wasted life um, by sitting by this pool hoping to be well, not trying to change anything. Um, there's, a, there's a sense that he's probably known for being that guy by the pool hoping to get well for 38 years. Um, and 
Jesus kind of hints near the end of the passage that this, this sin is perhaps, uh, sorry, this ailment is perhaps a result of sin. So the fact that he chooses him to be healed is quite interesting in itself. So out of all these people, Jesus looks at this guy who's been there for 38 years, just kind of resigned to his fate. He's sitting there, and it's possibly a result of sin, and he picks him out of everyone that's wanting to be well to heal him. And he asks him the question, I think, as a reasonable question, based on all of this, do you want to be well? And the guy doesn't say yes. He just explains to Jesus all the reasons why he can't get well. He sort of accepted that nothing will ever change. Um, he's, he's stuck. And so Jesus just says, get up and take your bed and walk. And he does. And at this point, Jesus kind of vanishes into the crowd. He, he doesn't see him. So the guy just walks out. And later, when Jesus confronts him in the temple, he's like, oh, I see you're well. The guy doesn't say thank you. He doesn't fall down and praise. He doesn't send out a hashtag or, you know, give him a shout out, anything like that. There's no sense of thanks about what's gone on. Um, he just he just kind of moves on with his life. It's, it's kind of disturbing, actually. And then near the end of the passage, he goes and tells on Jesus. So this is a guy whose life has been totally transformed, and he doesn't get it. He kind of just goes back to what he's always known, the authorities, the Sabbath, the, the feasts, the pool, the system he's built up to try and meet his need himself. He goes back to that as that's his only hope. It's quite interesting. But his life has been totally transformed. His suffering is over. In effect, his sin is forgiven. 38 years has come to a head. He's no longer that guy, but he doesn't get it. A new reality has broken in, and he can't see it. Everything on the outside has changed, but in some ways, nothing has changed. The default wins. His old system wins. He couldn't break out of it. He's still looking to what he's always known, these, these big things in his imagination, the rules, the system, the idea that hope is somewhere out there for me. So it's like getting a ticket to a free lunch and then being like, actually, I quite like the ticket. The font's quite nice. I think I'll just stick with this. Thanks very much. And so the story, it ends on a cliffhanger. Um, we never hear if he believes and has his eyes opened. Um, it's ominous. It's ambiguous. Um, it's a question mark. It's an uncomfortable silence. But it's also a gap for us as the reader. The reader, I think, is invited to ask, is this me as well? Am I missing a new reality? Am I stuck? And as I've sat with this open end in this story, um, this discomfort and, and quite frankly, a little bit of disappointment in this guy, I'm pointed back to myself. Um, I'm him. I think we are him. I think Jesus is still asking all of us, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, it may come as a surprise to you based on what can only be described as my somewhat angelic disposition. Um, um, but I was quite an impulsive child. Um, I'm what child psychologists can refer to as a loose unit. Um, uh, my, I'm the reason that my mother colors her hair. Um, 
I'm an oldest child, and you know what, what happens with oldest children is more than all the other siblings, we internalize the rules, but the research shows that that can go one of two ways. That can mean that you become a stickler for the rules, you become very black and white, and often pulling your siblings into line uh, because you know the rules really well, or you can internalize these rules, know them really well, they become part of you as well, but then you defiantly rebel. Um, and I sort of firmly uh, head into category two, column B, um, camp de, you might say. I uh, sort of realized early on that um, behaving myself was not something that I could commit to long term. Um, so I decided that um, I would self-actualize in another way. So by perhaps becoming memorable. Um, so <laughs> if I couldn't be good, then at least I wouldn't be boring, right? That's the philosophy that every parent longs to hear from their child. Um, I remember one day, actually at the age of six or seven, dad drops me off at school, and uh, as this car's driving away, I just flip him the bird. I just flip him the bird down the street. That's the first time you'll probably, and the last time you ever see that in church. Um, if you want to do your Instagram pic, do it now. Um, so I'm standing there just like, dad, you know, whatever. I'm flipping the bird at him. And then to my horror, the brake lights go on. <laughs> and my terrified little face realizes what's happening. And, and my dad reverses slowly down the road. In cinematic effect, I have to say, as well. I knew what he was doing. The window rolls down. <laughs> and I'm, like, shaking at this point. And he's like, what'd you do that for, Sam? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, you're having a bad day. And I was like, yeah, I'm having a bad day. And he says the worst words that a parent can say to a child. We'll talk about this when I get home. Perfect. Perfect. Um, there's another time that when we lived in the UK, we went to the, to the south of France for a holiday, and there was this festival uh, that was on. There was like 10,000 people there at this little festival in this town in France, and there was a band playing in the middle. Everyone was having fun. We were all dancing around. They'd given everyone confetti to throw on each other, and it was like, wow, this is really fun. And uh, so we're doing it, and I thought, this isn't fun enough. <laughs> so I scooped up all the confetti I could find into a big bag, and I walked over to the band and um, saw the keyboardist. And I thought, I'm going to throw all the confetti on the keyboardist and his keyboard. So I did. And I did, and then the whole festival went dark, and the band shut down, the lights went out. Um, they had to pour water over this keyboard to try and get the things out of the, of the keys. It was awful. And I was getting screamed at in French, which is the most terrifying thing to experience, by the way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, uh, suggest it. As my parents sort of socially distanced themselves uh, from me, um, it was really scary. And I thought, but I thought at the time, this would be funny. <laughs> this would be funny. Um, but my piece de resistance, see, I did learn some French that night. Um, yeah. My masterpiece, my magnum opus, if you will, um, was one time when I faked an abduction. I know, I know. Don't look at me like I don't know, I know, I know. My own abduction, actually, at the age of 16-ish. Um, <laughs> oh, um, my poor parents. I, I planted my, myself outside of Countdown in Mairangi Bay. Um, and two of my friends jumped out of a car dressed in suits and stuffed me into a boot. And we drove out of the countdown car park while all these drivers were hooting and following us out of the car park. The whole thing ended by six police cars chasing us down Constellation Drive on the shore uh, into a Caltex. Um, this is a picture I took at the time, which shows I found the whole thing very funny, um, only to find out that um, it was five minutes before they were going to send out a helicopter to look for us. It was hilarious. Um, and I did think at the time, this is going to make a great sermon illustration. Um, so, 
I tell you all these stories to paint a picture because I was acting out, actually, of a belief about myself, which further reinforced a belief about myself. And this belief was that I was not lovable. I saw myself in a certain way, sort of in shame. Uh, this idea that I couldn't be good, uh, that I was bad, um, that I was hard to love, that I was tiresome or a defect, um, that God maybe loved me theologically, but I don't think he liked me. Uh, and everyone, including God, took me with a, maybe an eye roll, maybe I was a pity friend, um, and I still carry that default, that core belief that I'm unlovable. Um, and so God needs to speak to kid Sam that grew up to be adult Sam believing the same things. So this is where I spill my guts. <laughs> As an adult, I still carry this default of, I guess, being a, dis a disappointment or uh, an embarrassment to the people around me, that I am someone to tolerate, um, that when people look at me, they look at my screw-ups. Um, <clears throat> I have a belief that maybe uh, unconditional love uh, is not actually for someone like me, so I fall back on other things, maybe a, a second best, like if I can't be loved, then maybe I can be admired. And so you become good at things that put you on stage, like playing music or public speaking and the expounding of ideas, because if you think, if I can be admired, then maybe that's almost as good as being loved. And so, as I sat with this story in John 5, and I looked at this guy clinging to his systems of hope and not being able to see that a new reality had broken in his life, um, I realized that I am this guy. I'm stuck. I've had a new identity given to me, um, but I throw myself back on myself to save myself in survival. And I think Jesus is still asking me, Sam, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And I feel like there are a few people that can relate to the things I'm saying, and this can be tied up to theology as well, and it can become what I can refer to as the toxic gospel, when it goes a little bit something like this. We all have wounding experiences growing up, um, whether just because you're a kid putting things together in the wrong way, or you have traumatic experiences or something with a parent not doing things properly, that at the core of our being, pretty much all of us are a little bit alone, hurt, and scared. We feel alone, hurt, and scared. And sometimes in church, growing up, we might mishear things, or maybe some theologically dodgy things happen, and we get this message that God has separated himself from me. Um, and that's, that's, that's the start of the toxic gospel. And so God separated himself from me, and we're meaning-making machines uh, so we're thinking, why has God separated himself from me? Because oh, I must be rejected. Okay, so why am I rejected? Oh, so my conscience then jumps in and says, because you're bad. And it's like, great, now I'm bad. Now I have confirmation of my deepest internal pain. Um, so I'm bad. God isn't there for me. What do I do now? Well, I guess I acknowledge, confess, repent, jump through the hoops, transfer myself from the out basket to the in basket but I can't keep it up. I can't get back because I'm trying to get back all the time, but I can't keep it up. And it's tiring and it's painful and it's never enough and I can't handle the struggle full time. So what do I do then? Well, most likely we'll turn to comfort and coping mechanisms. 
uh, and that can be substances or just escapist practices or sex or status or significance or porn or just plain disassociation so I don't have to confront the pain inside of me. And because I've given myself to all these things to help myself feel better, I feel a bit gross. And then I can often hear things from the pulpit that confirm that I am gross. I am actually gross, and God thinks I'm gross. Um, So, actually, maybe I don't come back to church. I look elsewhere to try and find the answers to my deep internal pain. So I look to culture, and culture constantly tells me to hustle, to build a brand, to keep on the grind, man, or... um, what Snap Fitness on my Instagram told me this week, to be fearless, be your own hero. I am stuck in a system with no way out, where nothing really works, asking the question, can I just give the whole project away, please? I've had enough. But remember... This story is a sign, it's a window, it's an icon, it's a picture of who God is. And it's picked especially out of thousands of other stories to say something about God. And what do we see in this story? We see a God who makes the first move to show you that there's new life for you. Even when you aren't, you aren't looking to him to find it that you don't have to scrounge for a new start. Here's what happened. You are the site of new creation. You are not what you've always been. You can genuinely let go of the past and the lies about yourself that you have absorbed. Your identity is actually in who you are becoming. So this is not just about trying to drum up a feeling of being made new or trying to hit some metrics of holiness, because that'll never work. This new identity is about receiving it from the outside, something outside of our toxic systems that we keep going to. And we have to practice living it out. It's kind of like a, a guard dog calming down and trusting the visitor by experiencing the visitor over time It is only by actively trusting uh, in Jesus through daily practices, interacting in relationships with him and others from a place of being loved, not out of survival and defensiveness, that we might see that this is true. This new identity is learned in community and practice. And this is the thing we're learning, that at the very base of our personhood, At the very base of your personhood, you are held and invited in. Something has shattered the broken record of our inward condemnation and dead-end self-help. We all come to this communion table um, just as needy as each other. And we all have the opportunity to give and receive this forgiven and made new identity from one another as well. This is what church is for by showing each other that we've been made new and reminding each other of that. So communion is kind of like a a kiss or an embrace. It's an outward physical sign of something true that God feels about us. It's a physical act of receiving the love of God and being included in his being and his community. So we're going to come to the table. And I encourage you also, come 
to rest. God has made the first move and planted you in a new identity. Come to rest. Give up your mechanisms and come to rest. Let me just pray. Lord, I ask that you'd uh, work on all of us this morning. Thank you that you're here. We just say, come Holy Spirit and impress on us your truth of how you feel about us. Remind us and show us again that we are made new and that you call us sons and daughters. Remind us that you made the first move. Come Holy Spirit and show us again who you are and who we are. I pray you do some some open heart surgery this morning on people. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say. And Lord, thank you that you're still asking us the question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? Help us to look to you for that and not what we've always done. Amen.